This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This week on the FCPA Compliance Report, I have Mike Lindsay, partner at Steinbrecher and Spawn in Los Angeles. His specialty is cyber risk and cybersecurity from the legal perspective. So we take a look at that. We also look at e-commerce. We consider how much information you can release internally on lessons learned and what should a company do around ephemeral messaging. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily pleased to have back with me Eric Young, uh, founder of Young Enterprises, LLC, and also uh, professor at Fordham. So, Eric, first of all, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Eric, as you know, uh, we had a massive settlement in uh, late October with Goldman Sachs around the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. One of the unique aspects of this case was a Fed component and uh, the State of New York Department of Financial Services component. And I really wanted to explore those two with you today sure. uh, and really start off. Many of our listeners may not have understood why was the Fed involved or the Federal Reserve Bank in a uh, FCPA resolution with Goldman Sachs? Just going back a little bit of history with the financial crisis, uh, at the end of the day, the major investment banks got absorbed or bought uh, by the commercial banks, and that's really not uncommon in other, in other countries as well. The commercial banks really have the capital, the liquidity, but in this case, the access to the Fed's discount window. And you'll recall back in the financial crisis, the eligibility to borrow directly from the Fed as the lender of last resort was limited to commercial banks. So among other reasons, Goldman Sachs, which was a bulge bracket, still a bulge bracket investment bank, needed to become a so-called bank holding company for that access and, and greater liquidity and, and capital. Now, that along with that is you got to meet the Fed's expectations um, around compliance and regulation. And, and last session, we talked about GE. But in this case, uh, to be a bank holding company, you have to serve as a financial and managerial source of strength. That's under the Bank Holding Company Act of 1956. And you also have to own uh, an entity that makes commercial loans and takes demand deposits. And over time, uh, Goldman Sachs has established a bank. Originally, it was a non-bank set up outside of New York, but it switched charters to the state of New York, which is supervised by the Department of Financial Services. So it's a bank holding company regulated by the Fed. The Fed is the primary supervisor. It has subordinate um, cousins like FINRA, the SEC. And, of course, there were many, many other international regulators uh, involved in the 1MDB uh, enforcement action as well. Fed order had a little bit different focus than certainly the deferred prosecution agreement or the SEC cease and desist or as it should uh, because the regulatory scheme is a little bit different. One of the things that I caught from reading the Fed order was that I felt like they criticized the Goldman Sachs compliance function, uh, not for burying their head in the sand, not for 
not doing their job, but not doing it well enough, especially around uh, uh, increased uh, due diligence and uh, testing, or if we can uh, channel our inner Ronnie Reagan, trust but verify when given information by uh, higher-ups at Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. Did you find that uh, same criticism, and did you find that to be valid within the context of the Fed order? Short answer is yes. Unfortunately, as we all know, as compliance officers, we often get targeted before management itself gets targeted who was culpable or accountable for uh, any misconduct for a particular business deal. But in the case of Goldman in this uh, in this example, compliance does own the AML and financial crime compliance program. They're the ones that design it. Compliance is the one that's also supposed to be monitoring and testing and ultimately reporting to the board on the effectiveness of the compliance program. Are the business people actually knowing their customers, documenting it, and following and reporting ultimately whether internally, whether a transaction or an activity or a client is suspicious or not? There were plenty of red flags, as we'll talk about later, involving 1MDB and Goldman Sachs. And so one of the Fed's major criticisms was that the AML program and the overall compliance program beyond the AML was in place, but not robust, particularly around uh, reporting these red flags to management, regulators, including FinCEN, uh, but also the DFS. So there were a lot of red flags, but a lot of holes in the compliance program. Last point on this is we talked before about system of internal controls and COSO. The Fed, since 2008 and actually in 2003, uh, gave the uh, governor gave a speech around enterprise-wide compliance programs. And in that regard, it was looking for the left hand and the right hand, particularly around large complex banking organizations, to roll up thematically and in, in granular detail compliance risks. And whether it's within the board-approved compliance risk appetite, and that's where some of the red flags and failures occurred as well. Thank you for that, because I wondered where that language came from. Uh, I'd never seen that in uh, any orders before. And uh, that was the insight. One of the insights I had was that we rarely have uh, critiques of a truly multinational, uh, multi-jurisdictional compliance program where it actually may be too siloed. And you said the left hand not doing yes. what the right hand or knew what the right hand was doing. And I thought that was a great reminder for compliance professionals that perhaps we don't talk about enough. Absolutely. And that's why the Justice Department since 91 has said you need, my words, not theirs exactly, is a, a chief compliance officer with stature and authority that can see the lay of the land so that they can report the lay of the land in a bite-sized storytelling way to the board of directors independently. And that's why I, I focus so much on enterprise-wide compliance risk management. Eric, one of the critiques, certainly around the Department of Justice's component, uh, enforcement component, was the lack of a monitor, uh, an, an independent monitor. But the Fed required ongoing oversight. It struck me in reading the Fed order that the oversight required by the Fed was even more robust than that in the Department of Justice's uh, deferred prosecution agreement. 
And I wanted to ask about uh, ongoing oversight from the Fed. Is this typical? Uh, do you find some comfort in this uh, on a go-forward basis? Frankly, I'm not the biggest fan of deferred prosecution agreements. I get it in terms of the rationale to get um, institutions to cooperate more and, and get some partial credit, if you will, under the sentencing guidelines. But um, and, and from what I understand, Goldman uh, negotiated for a long period of time to avoid a guilty plea because that can have broader implications at the holding company level, including Department of Labor, ERISA, QPAM status, which is a, a large lucrative business. Um, but And then the lack of an independent monitor. Sometimes firms need independent monitors to really scrutinize on the ground are, are, is there remediation going on? And just kind of toggling back to the Citibank and Citigroup example, um, they knew for years, as did Wells Fargo knew, know for years, that there were problems. But if it's not publicized enough um, with transparency, then uh, the culture doesn't always change. And an independent monitor makes a difference. The Fed, of course, does a great job um, in terms of going in on a continuous basis, they're actually on site, many of them, and um, are, are very scrutinizing. But the lack of a de uh, deferred prosecution agreement, lack of a monitor um, as additional layers of, I hate to call them layers of scrutiny, can make all the difference. But uh, lessons learned, and I think City is one of a series of institutions that are going to face these types of um, uh, enforcing actions, um, and it's not going to be pretty. Eric, if I could change the focus just a little bit to the State of New York Department of Financial Services. I find this to be one of the most interesting and perhaps even unique state regulatory bodies literally across the United States. And I was wondering if you might start by explaining what the New York DFS is for listeners who may not have heard of them, and then how they were involved in the Goldman Sachs resolution. The DFS, uh, formerly known as the New York State Banking Department, and there was a separate division for insurance companies, and they also regulate uh, healthcare institutions for, from a Medicare, Medicaid uh, perspective. So they merged uh, a lot of their divisions under this DFS, Department of Financial Services. And over the years, they've become much more aggressive from a prosecutorial and enforcement action perspective, um, and in some ways for good reason and with good outcomes, because sometimes that's what it takes to change corporate cultures at institutions. Uh, they oftentimes, over the last 10, 15 years, have been much tougher than the federal regulators uh, in terms of penalties, disclosure of some of the infractions, et, et cetera. Um, the reason why Goldman and the DFS uh, connected, so to speak, is because of the consumer bank uh, uh, that Goldman has, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, licensed in New York State. And um, as the New York State order highlights, there are a number of red flags that uh, Goldman not only did not escalate to the federal regulators and enforcement agencies, uh, but nor to the state. The, the state has long had its own New York banking laws, and they are very much seriously and rightly enforcing them as well. 
One of the interesting things I found, I, I really did was not aware of the details of the state of New York banking laws, but in the DFS order, it detailed specific information that needed to be passed on to the DFS around these trades. And I was wondering if, if first of all, is, uh, is the DFS really the only state regulatory body you're aware of that require that? But do such obligations also exist at the federal level for a bank's compliance department to report certain activity? Suspicious activity reports that could be in, insider crimes, could be fraud. It's not just anti-money laundering or sanctions related uh, to FinCEN. Uh, New York State has a similar law. New York Stock Exchange used to have uh, similar laws. They all had variations of the same thing as if you see something, say something. In the case of uh, Goldman Sachs Bank subsidiary chartered by uh, New York State, they were actually an investor in some of these bonds underwritten by uh, Goldman's Asia division and, and parents. And this goes back to what we said before about the left hand and the right hand not necessarily knowing what's going on. In this case, red flags did pop up. Compliance folks, business folks from different divisions of Goldman would raise issues, but they either fell on deaf ears. There was a quote in the Wall Street Journal saying this is just how things are done. And it didn't bubble up enough and compliance didn't have sufficient authority or courage, or both, um, to raise their hand and do the right thing and flag these uh, red flags to the appropriate authorities. That's one of the reasons why um, Goldman is where they are. We've talked about red flags a little bit, and obviously uh, having J-Lo involved uh, even tangentially was a red flag that was not pursued. The... Uh, structure of the deals, I think, were red flags. But when people think of red flags, sometimes they get stuck. Well, here's my list, 10 red flags, or here's my list, 20 red flags. But a red flag can be something as perhaps non-obvious as three $2 billion bond offerings in less than a 12-month period. Uh, and so I was wondering if um, there were red flags that were frankly missed, or there were other opportunities for compliance to if not see a pattern, uh, explore further what was going on. Yes, and in fact, some of the red flags popped up even before the 1MDB uh, fund was a twinkle in, in Jolo's eyes. Maybe it was twinkling for a while, but uh, before the deal started to come together, uh, Jolo and, and certain associates were uh, turned down by another part of uh, Goldman's private client, um, high net worth uh, division, that in itself should have been recorded as a flag when and by the time uh, Joe Lowe's name came up uh, on the sovereign fund side in which they, Goldman, had no hesitation in doing business uh, perhaps for the lucrative fees. The lucrative fees were considered uh, double the normal rate um, in terms of um, underwriting fees for these bond offerings. It goes back to, um, in fact, the KYC um, criteria. You know, is this usual? Uh, where is this person getting his money or money? And what are they going to use it for? Um, and does it have common sense? People have lost common sense 
putting the dots together, frankly, and it goes back to following the money, following the accounting, and then seeing if there are red flags and then escalating them to the appropriate um, bodies. Now, last point on this is there were high-level global committees that reviewed uh, whether these bonds should be underwritten or not. Compliance was part of it. A business intelligence committee was part of it. I wouldn't be surprised if compliance either didn't raise flags or was overridden. And so there are a lot of lessons learned per the sentencing guidelines as to what not to do. Um, This is, I think, an excellent case study for future firms um, as to lessons learned. The question is, will they learn their lessons? Uh, I'd now like to turn to uh, money laundering allegations uh, because this seemed, this was obviously a part of the overall FCPA settlement, yet in many ways I found these as troubling as the bribery and corruption because it appeared to me, at least on the formal record, either Goldman knew the monies were being sent to entities other than 1MDB or at least they didn't look very hard. And so um, I was wondering from your perspective, these money laundering allegations, uh, were they as troubling for you and how can a compliance practitioner think about the distribution of monies after the deal has gone through? So unfortunately, I think we've all seen many of these movies before. So one classic uh, money laundering scheme is just ultimately funnel money to hide illegal activities, criminal proceeds, if you will. And um, if I'm not mistaken, a number of shell companies, um, companies that had no real economic purpose were used to hide activity or to try to legitimize activity. So those should have been red flags as, as well. And I'm sure there'll be more coming out of the press and, and other um, uh, literature and case studies uh, around 1MDB, around what really happened why didn't certain flags get raised or uh, why were flags ignored? But money laundering, absolutely just as serious, if not more serious, because like accounting, it's a vehicle to hide illegality or misconduct. Uh, So, Eric, this has been a fascinating exploration of two parts of the Goldman Sachs FCPA settlement. We've been looking at the Fed order and the one from the state of New York Department of Financial Services I was wondering if our listeners wanted uh, to continue the conversation with you. How could they do so? They can always find me on on LinkedIn. uh, And my uh, Gmail address is also ericyoung927 at gmail.com. Happy to to speak with them. So why don't we end with a shameless plug plug for your... (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) One, it's my first book, Books are hard to write. That's one lesson learned for me, <laughs> when to stop writing and researching. But it should be out uh, before the next uh, month. Perfect time for the holidays. It's called Declaration of Independence, How Board of Directors and Independent Compliance Officers Can Make Management More Accountable. Well, Eric, I, for one, am greatly looking forward to it. And I hope after it comes out, I can ask you to come back and uh, you could talk about it uh, on the podcast. Happy to do so. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network, The Wirecard Saga, 
has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA compliance report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.